This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William M. Hetherington, as read by Leah Domes. Tape number 10. 4. A Christian magistrate, as a Christian magistrate, is a governor in the church. All magistrates, it is true, are not Christians but that is not their fault. All should be, and when they are, they are to manage their office under and for Christ. Christ hath placed governments in his church. Of other governments besides magistracy, I find no institution. Of them I do. I find all government given to Christ and to Christ as mediator, and Christ as head of these given to the church. To rob the kingdom of Christ of the magistrate and his governing power, I cannot excuse, no, not from a kind of sacrilege, if the magistrate be his. Footnote. Coleman's Sermon, pages 24 to 28. End of footnote. Sentiments such as these could not but be agreeable to the Erastian members of Parliament, yet they seem to have thought that Coleman had spoken with more plainness than prudence. For while they ordered the sermon to be printed, as was customary, they did not give him the thanks of the house, an omission which was extremely unusual. But the principles stated in Coleman's sermon were not allowed to remain long unassailed. On the 27th of August, George Gillespie preached a sermon before the House of Lords, and when it was published, he appended to it a small pamphlet of nine leaves, entitled, a brotherly examination of some passages of Mr. Coleman's late printed sermon. In this short treaty, Gillespie not only answered and refuted Coleman, but also completely turned his arguments against himself, proving first that the proper rule for human conduct in all things, but especially in religious matters, was to obtain as much of divine guidance or to establish as much by divine right as possible. He then proceeds to examine in succession Coleman's directions or rules in a very masterly manner, annihilating or reversing each with great strength and clearness of argument. It is proved that Coleman's principle that in every divine institution scripture must speak expressly would involve a dangerous tampering with scripture and would sweep away several important Christian institutions which were never doubted, 
and also that whatever by necessary consequence is drawn from Scripture is a divine truth, as well as what is expressly written therein. The argument of coordinate jurisdictions is next taken up, and thoroughly established both by argument and by illustration. And in answer to Coleman's assertion that he can find no institution of any government except magistracy, Gillespie proves from Scripture that obedience is directly commanded to spiritual governors who are over us in the Lord, and who must have been distinct from the civil magistrate at a time when there was no Christian magistracy. In a short, but very clearly stated argument, Gillespie refutes Coleman's dangerous assertion that all government is given to Christ as mediator and Christ as head of these given to the church, and states the distinction between Christ's government as God and as mediator, by the right understanding of which important idea the whole Erastian controversy must be decided. Coleman soon afterwards published a pamphlet entitled A Brotherly Examination Reexamined, which is distinguished chiefly by boldness of assertion and feebleness of argument. To this Gillespie replied in another, bearing the title Nihil Respondes, in which he somewhat sharply exposed the weakness of his antagonist's reasoning. Irritated by the castigation he had received, Coleman published a bitter reply to which he gave the not very intelligible title of Maledicis Maledicis, meaning, doubtless, that Gillespie's answer was rather of a railing character, or, to use a phrase of modern times, displayed a bad spirit. This Gillespie answered in an exceedingly vigorous pamphlet entitled Male Audis, in which he swept rapidly over the whole Erastian controversy, so far as Coleman and some of his friends had brought it forward, convicted him and them of numerous self-contradictions, of unsoundness in theology, of violating the covenant which they had sworn, and of inculcating opinions fatal to both civil and religious liberty. To this Coleman did not attempt to reply, feeling probably that he was overmatched. Several of these controversial pamphlets appeared in the course of the year 1646, and towards the close of the same year Gillespie published his celebrated work Aaron's Rod Blossoming, or the Divine Ordinance of Church Government Vindicated. In this remarkably able and elaborate production, Gillespie took up the harassing controversy as stated and defended by his ablest advocates, fairly encountering their strongest arguments and assailing their most formidable positions in the frank and fearless manner of a man thoroughly sincere and thoroughly convinced of the truth and goodness of his cause. The work is divided into three books, the first treating of the Jewish church government, the second of the Christian church government, and the third of excommunication from the church and of suspension from the Lord's table. In the first book, the five following propositions are demonstrated. 1. That the Jewish church was formerly distinct from the Jewish state. 2. That there was an ecclesiastical Sanhedrin and government distinct from the civil. 3. 
that there was an ecclesiastical excommunication distinct from civil punishments. 4. That in the Jewish church there was also a public exomologesis or declaration of repentance and thereupon a reception or admission again of the offender to fellowship with the church in the holy things. 5. That there was a suspension of the profane from the temple and Passover. In this part of his work, Gillespie boldly met and completely overthrew the united strength of Selden, Lightfoot, and Coleman on their own chosen field of Hebrew learning. In the second book, or part of his work, of the Christian church government, the main element of the controversy which he had to encounter is of a nature so abstract that it requires peculiar clearness of thought and accuracy of reasoning to keep the subject intelligible and to draw the requisite distinctions. Coleman had in his sermon said that a Christian magistrate as a Christian magistrate is a governor in the church and that all government is given to Christ as mediator and Christ as head of these is given to the church. From this he drew though not very distinctly, the inference that the Christian magistrate is directly the vistorant of Christ and therefore rules in the church. Yet when pushed on this point, he recoiled and modified his inference so as to state it in the following terms, that magistracy is given to Christ to be serviceable in his kingdom. But this modified statement would not have answered the purposes of the Erastians, and therefore their principle was more boldly and plainly expressed by Mr. Hussey, minister of Kesselhurst in Kent. This thorough Erastian boldly maintained both that all government is given to Christ as mediator and that Christ as mediator has placed the Christian magistrate under him and as his vistorant and has given him commission to govern the church. It will be at once perceived that the very terms of this proposition involved an inquiry into the nature and extent of Christ's mediatorial sovereignty. To this point, accordingly, Gillespie directed his attention and his answer to Hussey's argument. He draws the distinction between the power and sovereignty of Christ as the eternal Son of God and as God-man and mediator, considered as the eternal Son of God, as the word by whom the universe was called into being. He necessarily rules over all, and magistrates derive their power from him. Considered as God-man and mediator, his direct sovereignty is in and over the church, which is his body and all power has been given to him, both in heaven and in earth, to be wielded by him for the safety and the extension of his spiritual kingdom. A further distinction is drawn by Gillespie betwixt power over and power in any kingdom, which are not necessarily identical, although the one may be employed for the purpose of promoting and securing the other. In this argument, some have thought that Gillespie has drawn his distinctions too fine, more so than was necessary for his argument, or than many would be able to follow or willing to admit. 
Beyond all question, he has overthrown the Erastian theory that the civil magistrate is Christ's visitant and appointed to govern the church. But some have been afraid that one aspect of his argument might seem to countenance the voluntary theory and to exempt civil government from the duty and responsibility of giving countenance and support to the church. Certainly no such idea was ever in Gillespie's mind, nor is it my opinion that his reasoning rightly understood gives it the least shadow of support. Besides, if there be any danger arising from the extreme fineness with which his distinctions are drawn in that branch of his argument, it is completely removed by the succeeding chapter, in which he treats of the power and privilege of the magistrate in things and causes ecclesiastical, what it is and what it is not. It would be well if magistrates would study carefully the passage alluded to, that they might acquire some information respecting the proper nature and boundaries of their duties and responsibilities, circa sacra, about religious matters, as distinguished from what they have always been so eager to usurp, power in sacris, in religious matters, which forms no part of their peculiar duty and is not within their province. The third book of excommunication from the church and of suspension from the Lord's table has the appearance of being an answer to Prynne, who had written largely against the exercise of such power by church officers. But it is evident that Gillespie had more in view than merely to answer Prynne. He makes no express reference to the Parliament's just divinum queries, but he meets them nevertheless and gives to them very conclusive answers, while appearing to be merely replying to a less formidable antagonist. The very tenor of Prynne's writings gave him this opportunity, for Prynne kept as closely to the line of the parliamentary queries as he with propriety could so that Gillespie was both enabled and fairly entitled to answer both at once, so far as they were identical or similar. The work, in short, is a very complete refutation of the whole Erastian theory, taking up its leading points systematically, clearing away all obscurities of language, reducing every argument to its elementary principles, stating these in the form of simple propositions, and in terms strictly defined, so as to preclude sophistry or mere verbal subtleties, and proceeding to refute error and demonstrate truth in a manner singularly clear and forcible, displaying, each in a very high degree, extensive learning, sound judgment, intellectual acuteness and strength, and the pure and lofty spirit of genuine Christianity. Another very able and elaborate work on the Erastian controversy was written and published also in the year 1646 by Samuel Rutherford entitled The Divine Right of Church Government and Excommunication. Although Rutherford manifests a thorough understanding of the subject and treats very fully of all its main elements, exhibiting great learning and extreme minuteness in thought argument and illustration, 
his work is not, upon the whole, so successful as that of Gillespie. It is defective in point of arrangement, and especially for want of a statement of the systematic order which the author meant to follow, though it is perfectly plain that in his own mind there was a system by which he regulated his course of argument. But the very minuteness of his learning and his reasonings is felt to obscure or rather to overlay the subject, and while tracing out every point of detail, the general impression is either weakened or fails to be forcibly conveyed. This, however, is criticism according to modern taste, for the style of the times when Rutherford wrote was to exhaust every subject under discussion and to leave nothing unsaid upon it that could be said. In this respect, therefore, Rutherford merely followed the spirit of the age in which he lived, and whosoever will carefully peruse his very elaborate work will obtain ample materials for the refutation of Erastianism. There appeared another work at that time, not indeed written by one of the Assembly of Divines, but so intimately connected with the controversies which were agitated among them that it deserves to be mentioned here. This was a treaty written by the celebrated Apollonius of Middleburg, entitled Consideratio Corandum Controversarum Ad Regimen Ecclesiae Di Spectantium Quae in Aglae Regno Hodi Agitantur. When this treaty was published, a copy of it was sent to each member of the Westminster Assembly. It was, says Bailey, not only very well taken, but also, which is singular, and so far as I remember, abs explento. It was ordered Nemen contradescent to write a letter of thanks to Apollonius. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 246. End of footnote. The spirit of this work is thoroughly Presbyterian, encountering alike the theories of the Independents and the Erastians. It consists of seven chapters, each treating of a separate topic briefly, but with great clearness and force of reasoning. They are as follow. 1. Concerning the qualification of church members. 2. Concerning a church covenant. 3. Concerning the church visible and instituted. 4. Concerning power ecclesiastical. 5. Concerning Ecclesiastical Ministry and its Exercise. 6. Concerning Classes, Presbyteries, and Synods, and their Authority. 7. Concerning Forms or Directories of Faith and Worship. It will at once be seen that in the discussion of these topics, the learned author must come into direct collision with both the Independents and the Erastians. Yet his work was very little of a merely controversial character, being a calm and dispassionate, but very clear and able, disquisition concerning these important theological questions. There is another very valuable work by the same author, which in a short time before the meeting of the Westminster Assembly, but treating very fully of the Erastian theory. Its title is Just Magistratus Circa Sacra, Sive Tractatus Theologicus De Jure Magistratus Circa Res 
Ecclesiasticus. A translation of this work for the purpose of general circulation would be a very valuable contribution to the cause of religious liberty, which is at present beset by so many and such formidable enemies. But we must quit this digression, however alluring the subject, and return to what remains to be stated respecting the concluding labors of the Westminster Assembly. Enough if the attention of the reader has been directed to some of the most important works relating to the great arresting controversy which he may peruse for himself. And we do not hesitate to say that it is scarcely possible for any man especially for any Christian, to engage in a study of deeper and more universal importance. For it directly involves the glory of the Mediator, as sole head of his body, the Church, and sole king in Zion, his spiritual kingdom. The purity, peace, and freedom of the Church in its administration and in the rights and privileges of its members the moral and religious welfare of the community as involved in and flowing from the efficiency and the extension of true and living Christianity, the divinely appointed remedy for the miseries of fallen mankind, and even the progress of civilization, the maintenance of peace and the stability of kingdoms, as all depending upon the blessing and the favor and protection of him who is Prince of the Kings of the Earth. And it is so eminently the great controversy of the present day that upon its right or wrong determination depends the continuance of peace throughout Christendom or the speedy commencement of commotions and conflicts of the most portentous nature, shaking the foundations of society and ending in widespread anarchy and desolation. Hetherington's summary of chapter 5 reads as follows. The larger and shorter catechisms. Inquiry concerning their authorship. Departure of the Scottish commissioners. Final dissolution of the Westminster Assembly. The ratification of the Directory of Worship and of Church Government by the Church of Scotland. Also of the Confession of Faith with an explanation guarding against any arresting construction. Brief view of public events connected with the Assembly's proceedings. Struggle between the Parliament and the Army. Cromwell's usurpation. Death of Charles I. Dissolution of the Long Parliament and the Westminster Assembly. Senate of London. The Independence in Power. Committee of Triers, the Savoy Confession, Restoration of Charles II, Prelacy Restored, Act of Uniformity and Ejection of 2,000 Presbyterian Ministers on St. Bartholomew's Day, Retrospective Review and Summary of the Westminster Assembly's Proceedings, Religious Uniformity in the Three Kingdoms by Mutual Consultation, intended to form the basis of a secure and permanent peace, a rasting element and its consequences, mutual misunderstandings, mutual agreement, effect on the universities,
on theological literature, on education, state of the kingdom and army, sectarians, toleration, its true nature imitated, how misunderstood by both parties, liberty of conscience, unlimited toleration not granted by the independents when in power, great idea of a general Protestant Union entertained by the Westminster Assembly, how yet attainable, theological productions of the Westminster Assembly, conclusion. Chapter 5, Conclusion of the Westminster Assembly Although the chief duties for which the Assembly of Divines were summoned to meet at Westminster may be regarded as having been discharged when they had prepared and laid before the Parliament directories for public worship and ordination, a form of government, rules of discipline, and a confession of faith, yet there remain several matters subordinate indeed, but still important, on account of which they continue to sit and deliberate for some time longer, an outline of which we now proceed to give, before offering some concluding remarks on the whole subject. A Catechism for the Instruction of Children and of the Comparatively Ignorant and Religious Truth will always be regarded as a most important matter by every true Christian church, and as the Catechism of the Church of England was undeniably both meager and unsound, it formed a part of the Assembly's duty to prepare a more accurate and complete Catechism as a portion of the national system to be established. The attention of the Assembly was occupied almost entirely by the discussions respecting the directories of ordination and worship till towards the end of 1644. They then began to prepare for composing a confession of faith and a catechism, and according to their usual course of procedure, committees were appointed to draw up an outline in regular systematic order for the consideration of the assembly. But the progress of the assembly in these points was retarded by the various events which have been already related, so that little was done till towards the end of May 1645. The committees from that time forward carried on their labors in preparing the Confession and the Catechism simultaneously, but, as Bailey says, languidly the minds of the divines being enfeebled by the delay of the house to grant the petition respecting power to exclude scandalous persons from communion. After some progress had been made with both, the assembly resolved to finish the confession first, and then to construct the catechism upon its model, so far at least as to have no proposition in the one which was not in the other, by which arrangement there would be left scarcely any ground for subsequent debate and delay. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 379. End of footnote. But political movements, answers to the independents and to the Erastians, and other disturbing influences, so impeded the assembly's progress that the catechisms were not so speedily completed as had been expected. The shorter catechism was presented to the House of Commons 
on the 5th of November, 1647, and a larger on the 14th of April, 1648. After they had been carefully perused by the Parliament, an order was issued on the 15th of September, 1648, commanding them to be printed for public use. The king, during his residence in the Isle of Wight, after many solicitations, consented to license the Shorter Catechism with a suitable preface. But as the negotiations did not end in a treaty, that consent was never realized. There have been many inquiries instituted in order to ascertain, if possible, by whom the original outline of the Catechism was prepared, but hitherto without success. In our opinion, there is no reason to think that it was done by any one person. Committees were appointed to prepare everything that was to be brought before the assembly. We find no separate committee named expressly for the purpose of drawing up the catechism, and we find repeated proofs of a very close connection between the catechism and the confession. It may reasonably be inferred that both subjects were conducted by the same committee, which was composed of Drs. Gouge and Hoyle, Messrs. Hurl, Gattaker, Tuckney, Reynolds, Vines, and the Scottish ministers. Some add Aerosmith and Palmer, both men of great piety, learning and abilities, and the latter term by Bailey, the best catechist in England. Palmer, it appears, was appointed to draw up a section in the Directory of Public Worship on catechizing, but it did not give satisfaction, and that topic was not inserted in the Directory. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 148. End of footnote. Scarcely could it be called an unfair inference were we to conclude from this fact that Palmer had no peculiar share in framing the catechism. It may be mentioned that Dr. Aerosmith was appointed Master of St. John's College, Cambridge, in the year 1644, before the catechism was begun, and that his attendance upon the assembly after that period was only occasional, in consequence of the new sphere of duties on which he was called to enter. Mr. Palmer was also constituted Master of Queen's College, Cambridge, in the same year, but he continued to attend the assembly very constantly till the time of his death in the year 1647, at which time the catechism was still unfinished. It has been also conjectured that the first outline of the catechism may have been drawn by Dr. Wallace one of the scribes of the assembly at that period, and afterwards so justly celebrated as civilian professor of geometry at Oxford and one of the first mathematicians of the age. This conjecture may have arisen from the fact that he wrote a short treatise entitled A Brief and Easy Explanation of the Shorter Catechism, which was so much approved of by the assembly that they caused it to be presented to both Houses of Parliament. Footnote. Reads Lives of the Westminster Divines. Volume 2, page 214. End of footnote. 
But in truth, as has been already suggested, the framing of the Catechism appears to have been the work of the committee and not of any one individual. And it was brought to its present admirable degree of nearness to perfection by the united deliberations of the whole assembly. The chief matters on account of which the assembly had been called together being now completed, so far as depended on that venerable body itself, the Scottish commissioners prepared to take their departure. This indeed had to a certain extent already taken place, though not formally. The celebrated Alexander Henderson had been sent to Newcastle to converse with the king during his majesty's residence along with the Scottish army for the purpose of endeavoring to persuade him to consent to such terms as might form the basis of a satisfactory and permanent peace. Exhausted already with the long continuance and severity of his arduous public toils, and finding it impossible to make any impression on the mind of the infatuated monarch, Henderson left Newcastle and returned to Edinburgh, where he soon afterwards died, leaving behind him a reputation unsurpassed by any man since the days of the first reformers. And towards the close of the year 1646, Bailey obtained permission to leave the assembly and return to Scotland that he might communicate to the commission of the Scottish General Assembly what had been done by the Westminster Divines, preparatory for the meeting of the Assembly at Edinburgh in August 1647, when it was expected that the proceedings of the Westminster Assembly would be formally considered and approved of by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, as the ground of the desired uniformity in religion between the two kingdoms. Gillespie and Rutherford still remained as the Westminster Assembly had been required by the Parliament to add scripture proofs to the Confession of Faith, but Gillespie left London in time to be present in the General Assembly, Rutherford remaining a little longer. It may be stated that the Assembly had intentionally abstained from inserting texts of scripture in the copy of the Confession first presented to Parliament, not because they had themselves any difficulty in doing so, but to avoid giving offence to the Parliament, whose custom had previously been to enact nothing concerning religion on divine right or on scriptural grounds. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 3, Page 2. End of footnote. This change in the procedure of the Parliament was doubtless intended to cause delay, but its effect was the rendering of the Confession a much more perfect work than it would otherwise have been. On the 24th of October, 1647, Samuel Weatherford moved that it might be recorded in the books of the scribes that the Assembly had enjoyed the assistance of the Honourable reverend and learned commissioners of the Church of Scotland during all the time they had been debating and perfecting these four things mentioned in the covenant, namely a directory for public worship, a uniform confession of faith, a form of church government and discipline, and a public catechism. The assembly assented unanimously to this motion, and Mr. Hurl, the prolocutor, 
rose up and, in the name of the assembly, returned thanks to the honorable and reverend commissioners for their assistance. He went on to explain the causes which prevented the directory from being so well observed as it ought to be, and lamented that the assembly had not power to call offenders to account. He further adverted to the chaos of confusion in which public affairs in England were continuing, the king having been seized by the army and the parliament being overawed by the same usurping power, acknowledging that their extraordinary successes hitherto had been granted in answer to the prayers of their brethren of Scotland and other Protestants abroad, as well as to their own. Footnote, Neil, Volume 2, page 431. End of footnote. The business of the assembly was now virtually at an end. The subjects brought before them by Parliament had been all fully discussed, and the result of their long and well-matured deliberations presented to both houses to be approved or rejected by the supreme civil power on its own responsibility. But the Parliament neither fully approved nor rejected the Assembly's productions, nor yet issued an ordinance for a formal dissolution of that venerable body. Negotiations were still going on with the King, and in one of the papers which passed between His Majesty and the Parliament, he signified his willingness to sanction the continuation of Presbyterian church government for three years, and also that the assembly should continue to sit and deliberate, his majesty being allowed to nominate twenty Episcopalian divines to be added to it, for the purpose of having the whole subject of religion again formally debated. To this proposal the Parliament refused to consent, but it probably tended to prevent them from formally dissolving the assembly, so long as there remained any shadow of hope that a pacific arrangement might be effected with His Majesty. In the meantime, many members of the assembly, especially those from the country, returned to their own homes and ordinary duties, and those who remained in London were chiefly engaged in the examination of such ministers as presented themselves for ordination or induction into vacant charges. They continued to maintain their formal existence till the 22nd of February, 1649, about three weeks after the king's decapitation, having sat five years, six months, and 22 days, in which time they had held 1,163 sessions. They were then changed into a committee for conducting the trial and examination of ministers and continued to hold meetings for this purpose every Thursday morning till the 25th of March, 1652, when Oliver Cromwell, having forcibly dissolved the long parliament by whose authority the assembly had been at first called together, that committee also broke up and separated without any formal dissolution and as a matter of necessity. As the main object of the Westminster Assembly was to frame such a system of church government and public worship as might unite the kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland in religious uniformity, and as the Assembly had completed its task, the next point was to lay the result of its labors before the Church of Scotland, that its consent might be obtained. 
This was in perfect harmony with the whole procedure of Scotland in this great and sacred enterprise. The Church of Scotland had neither the power nor the wish to force its system upon England, as little would it have submitted to English dictation in a matter so important. And although the English Parliament had not fully ratified all the propositions of the Westminster Assembly, yet since these were completed, the delay of England was no sufficient reason why the Church and Kingdom of Scotland should also delay, if satisfied with the system which the Assembly of Divines had prepared. Even before the completion of the Westminster Assembly's labors, the Church of Scotland had shown its satisfaction and its readiness to promote the desired uniformity, for in the General Assembly held at Edinburgh early in the year 1645, an act of assembly was passed on the 3rd of February ratifying the Directory of Public Worship, and on the 15th of February another act was passed ratifying the form of church government and ordination, though these had not yet received the full ratification of the English Parliament. Again, in the General Assembly, which met in August 1647, the Confession of Faith was taken into consideration, copies having been previously distributed throughout the Church, and was solemnly ratified by an Act of Assembly passed on the 27th of August, 1647, the larger and shorter catechisms not being ready at that time, owing to the delays which had impeded the progress of the Westminster Divines were not ratified till the following year, when both of them obtained the full sanction of the General Assembly in July 1648. It may be necessary to mention that so jealous was the Church of Scotland, lest her sanction should be given to anything which bore an Erastian taint, or might, by perverse ingenuity, be so construed that in the Act of Assembly which ratified the Confession of Faith, an explanation was inserted giving the Assembly's understanding of some parts of the second article of the 31st chapter, which seemed, or might be interpreted to seem, to grant more power to the civil magistrate in the calling of synods than the Church of Scotland was prepared to admit. And still more completely, to guard against the very superstition of any tincture of Erastianism, the Assembly caused to be printed a series of propositions, or thesis against Erastianism, as Bailey terms them, amounting to 111, drawn up by George Gillespie, embodying eight of them in the act which authorized their publication. It is impossible to peruse these 111 propositions without being thoroughly convinced that the General Assembly never would have ratified the Confession of Faith if they had understood it to contain any such Erastian taint as some in modern times have affected to discover in it. Let the third section of the 23rd chapter be carefully perused by any intelligent and candid person in connection with the whole proceedings of the Assembly of Divines at Westminster and of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland and with the 111 propositions, and he must conclude that it cannot possibly have an Erastian meaning, even though he should be unable to state what it really does mean, unless indeed he were to suppose that the Westminster Assembly and the Church of Scotland did not understand the true meaning of their own propositions. But the truth appears to be that the learned and able men of that period 
had so thoroughly studied and mastered the essential elements of the Erastian controversy that they could state the propositions respecting the duty and power of the civil magistrate, Circa Sacra, about religious matters, without admitting his possession of any duty and power in Sacris in religious matters, in terms which, to their practiced minds, mark the boundaries in sharp and narrow but clear and definite distinctions. While men who have not so deeply studied these subjects and whose mental acumen has not been so much exercised cannot trace and are perpetually crossing these boundary lines, more it may be from want of perspicacity or knowledge than in willful perverseness. A full and clear history of the Erastian controversy stating distinctly the great principles which it involves and their bearing upon liberty, civil and religious, would be a work of incalculable value at the present time. That very controversy having again begun to disturb men's minds and threatening to shake to pieces the most valuable institutions, if not to overturn the entire structure of society. Although the course of events has led to the statement of the Westminster Assembly's dissolution with which this narrative might close, yet as its influence did not at once terminate with its actual duration, it seems expedient to give a brief outline of some of the leading events which still retained its impress, till they became almost indistinguishable, blended with the onward movements of the national mind and history. It will be remembered that a new element was introduced into the acting powers of the body politic when, by means of the self-denying ordinance, members of Parliament were prohibited from holding any post in the army, and new general officers were appointed, while a special permission was given to Cromwell, enabling him to retain his military command. From that time forward, there was a distinction of aims and interests between the Parliament and the army. Although they continued their mutual cooperation, till the king's power was laid prostrate. In the parliament, the Presbyterian party retained the ascendancy. In the army, the independents appeared to do so, although they formed but one of the many sects of which it was almost entirely composed. For some time after the king had taken up his residence at Holmby, the disagreement between the parliament and the army appeared only in the shape of negotiations in the terms of which the two parties could not agree. The Parliament wishing to disband a large proportion of the troops and to send a considerable body to Ireland to suppress the Popish insurrection in that country and the army petitioning for an act of indemnity for any illegal actions they might have committed during the war. This petition was stigmatized by the Commons as a mutinous tendency subjecting its promoters to be proceeded against as disturbers of the public peace. The army immediately formed a council of the principal officers to deliberate for their own protection, and to this was added two soldiers out of each company to assist the officers in their council. To these soldiers was given the designation agitators or assistants. But this somewhat pedantic title very speedily degenerated into the more intelligible title, Agitators, 
by which name accordingly they are best known. The disagreement continuing, the army seized possession of the king's person and marched towards London, declaring their intention to new model the government as the only method of securing a settled peace to the nation. Eleven of the leading Presbyterian members of the House of Commons were accused as guilty of high treason and enemies of the army, and with equally unwise and unmanly terror left the house. The city of London prepared to meet the danger, enrolled the militia, threw up defenses, and made ready to repel force by force. But the Parliament was divided. The speakers of both houses favored the independence, and the absence of the eleven impeached members discouraged their party. The two speakers and about sixty-two of the members retired to the army. This gave to that formidable power what it wanted, the semblance of being engaged in defense of the legislature itself, and with increased alacrity it advanced against the city. Strife and confusion had, in the meantime, done their work. Without men of ability and determination to direct and lead them on, the citizens were unable to encounter a veteran army, and London threw open its gates, and submitted to a power formidable indeed, but utterly unable to have taken forcible possession of that city, had it been boldly and vigorously defended. The army, having thus manifested its power, recoiled a little, and allowed the Parliament to continue to sit and deliberate, as is still the supreme authority in the nation, although the king was carefully retained under the superintendence of the military leaders. At length, Charles contrived to escape from Hampton Court with the intention of withdrawing from the kingdom and seeking the aid of foreign powers to reinstate him on his throne. But not being able to procure a passage, he entrusted himself to Hammond, governor of the Isle of Wight, by whom he was kept in Carisbrook Castle in real imprisonment, though treated with respect. A series of negotiations for a treaty was resumed between the King and the Parliament, which, like every preceding attempt, proved abortive, in consequence of that strange peculiarity in His Majesty's character, the union of inflexible obstinacy in one point, with boundless and incurable dissimulation in every other. At the very time that the King was treating with the English Parliament for peace, he was framing a private engagement with the Scottish royalists, by means of which he hoped to recover his power by force of arms. This led to the march into England of another Scottish army, under the command of the Duke of Hamilton, who had obtained a temporary ascendancy in the Scottish Parliament, but against the opposition and under the protest of the true and faithful Covenanters. Cromwell marched against this army, defeated it and returned to London, determined to put an end to the struggle by putting to death a monarch whose principles were of the most despotic character and upon whose most solemn treaties no reliance could be placed. Again was the Parliament subjected to military force. Upwards of 40 of the Presbyterian ministers were cast into confinement. Above 160 were excluded from the house.
and none were suffered to sit and deliberate but the most determined sectarians in all not exceeding sixty. This violent invasion of parliamentary rights is commonly termed Pride's Purge from the name of Colonel Pride, the person who commanded the military detachment by which it was perpetrated and the parliamentary section which was allowed to remain is known by the designation of the Rump Parliament. The Republican Revolution now swept onward with great rapidity and irresistible force. It was resolved that the king should be brought to trial as guilty of treason against the people of England before what was termed a court of justice. The House of Lords refused to give their consent and the Commons voted the concurrence of the Lords to be unnecessary, the people being the source of all just power. The unfortunate king was brought before the court of justice and accused of treason. He declined their jurisdiction and defended himself with great dignity and courage. But all his defenses were overruled. The dread sentence was pronounced and on the 30th of January 1649 he perished on the scaffold, the victim of an inflexible attachment to superstitious observances and despotic principles, and of an incurable perseverance in the art of dissimulation. Yet in his last moments, displaying a degree of personal intrepidity, firmness of character, and Christian-like calmness and elevation of mind worthy of a better cause. No sooner had the tidings of the ill-fated monarch's tragic end reached Scotland than it called forth a burst of intense sorrow and indignation from the heart of every true Presbyterian covenanter in the kingdom. Arrangements were instantly made for placing the young prince on the Scottish throne and supporting him there by force of arms, if necessary, provided he would subscribe the covenant. To this Charles was unwilling to consent, if he could otherwise obtain his purpose, and with this design held the Scottish commissioners in terms, while conducting a private treaty with Montrose, in the hope of securing the kingdom by his means without any stipulation. But while in this he showed proofs of hereditary dissimulation, when Montrose failed, he consented to swear the covenant which he never intended to keep. In this respect, committing a crime darker far than any with which his father's memory is chargeable. For though Charles I seems to have regarded dissimulation as allowable in diplomacy, which perhaps statesmen in general may be thought also to do, he reverenced an oath and would not on any account have sworn what he did not intend to perform. But Cromwell was not disposed to permit the establishment of the royal power in Scotland, by which his own supremacy might be endangered. He therefore marched northwards at the head of his veteran army, invaded Scotland, and after a series of military movements in which he was fairly matched by David Leslie, he gained a decisive victory near Dunbar. The Scottish army rallied and took up a strong position near Stirling, but their flank being turned and their resources cut off, 
the young prince adopted the daring enterprise of marching into England, hoping to be joined by the royalists in that country. His hopes were disappointed, that party being thoroughly broken and dispirited, and being overtaken by Cromwell, a final struggle took place at Worcester, which ended in the total rout and dispersion of the royal army. After encountering many perilous adventures and narrow escapes, Charles fled to the continent, and Cromwell returned to London to consolidate that power in which he had now no rival but the degraded rump of the Long Parliament. As he no longer needed the services of that faction, he fostered or at least encouraged a quarrel between the army and Parliament, and taking part with the former, he hastened to the House of Commons, assailed the astonished members with a torrent of violent invectives, ordered the mace, that bauble, to be taken away, called in the military to eject the dismayed but struggling members, and having locked the door, put the key in his pocket and returned to Whitehall. So fell the English Parliament beneath the power of military usurpation, and at the same moment terminated the Westminster Assembly. It will be remembered that London and its immediate vicinity had been formed into twelve presbyteries, constituting the Provincial Synod of London. This synod continued to hold regular half-yearly meetings till the year 1655, without encountering any direct obstruction from Cromwell, but receiving no encouragement. They then ceased to hold regular meetings as a synod, but continued to meet as presbyteries, and to maintain, as far as possible, every other point of Presbyterian church government and discipline. It is probable, or rather certain, that their ceasing to act as a synod was caused by the conduct of Cromwell in regard to religious matters. When upon the death of the king, the government of England was changed to a commonwealth, an ordinance was passed appointing an engagement to be taken, first by all civil and military officers, and afterwards by all who held official situations in the universities, and at last it was further ordered that no minister be capable of enjoying any preferment in the church unless he should, within six months, take the engagement publicly before the congregation. The consequence of this was that while the engagement was readily taken by all the sectarians and by many Episcopalians of lax principles, it was refused by great many of the Presbyterians, several of whom were in a short time ejected from the situations to which they had been appointed by the Parliament. Cromwell and his council, carrying into full execution this course of procedure, certainly not that of toleration, immediately placed independence in the situations thus rendered vacant by the ejection of the Presbyterians prohibited the publication of pamphlets censuring the conduct of the new government and abolished the monthly fasts, which had continued to be regularly kept for about seven years and whose sacred influence had often been deeply 
and beneficially felt by both Parliament and Assembly. The Reverend Christopher Love was beheaded for being engaged in or cognizant of a correspondence with Scotland for the purpose of supporting the interests of Charles II. Not long afterwards, in the year 1654, an ordinance of council was issued appointing a new committee of 38 persons, nine of whom were laymen, to examine and approve all who should be presented, nominated, chosen, or appointed to any benefice with cure of souls, or to any public set of lecture in England or Wales. Of this new committee, commonly called triers, some were Presbyterians, a large proportion independents, and a few were Baptists. Any five were sufficient to approve, but no number under nine had power to reject a person as unqualified. In this manner, although the Presbyterian Church government was not formally abolished by Cromwell, its power was transferred to the hands of the Committee of Triers, and consequently the Synod ceased to hold meetings which could no longer exercise any authority. This committee continued to exercise its functions till the Protector's death in 1658, when it was discontinued. Another ordinance appointed commissioners, chiefly laymen for every country, with power to eject scandalous, ignorant, and insufficient ministers and schoolmasters. This also superseded the previous arrangements which had been made by the Long Parliament for a similar purpose, intended to bring every ecclesiastical matter under the direct control of the civil power, and in a great measure under the superintendence of the protector himself and his council. By this ordinance, as well as by that of the Parliament, it was appointed that ample time should be allowed to the ejected person for his removal, and the fifths of the benefice were reserved for the support of his family. When the prelatic party silenced and deposed the Puritans and nonconformists of other days, no such generosity was shown to them or their families but neither the Presbyterians nor the Independents were so forgetful of the principles of Christianity as to requite evil with evil, but showed kindness to their former calumniators and oppressors. The Independents were now raised to the enjoyment of a large measure of power and favor, although the Protector managed to reserve to himself the reality without the name of ecclesiastical supremacy. They felt accordingly that they might now safely adopt a course on which nothing had hitherto been able to induce them to enter. The preparation, namely of some public document, of the nature of a confession of faith. To this they had been often urged by the Westminster Assembly, but in vain. They were aware that a full and explicit statement of their principles would deprive them of the support of a large proportion of the numerous sects who viewed them as the leading sectarian party, and might thereby so reduce their influence as to render their hopes of promoting their own system exceedingly feeble. But the Presbyterians were now depressed and overborne. 
Some of the most dangerous of the sects have been forcibly suppressed, such as the Levelers, Fifth Monarchy Men, and so on. And they might now promulgate their own views without incurring the danger of losing valuable adherents. Some of the leading men among them accordingly met in London, and having agreed upon the propriety of framing a confession of faith as had been done by other churches, they requested permission from the protector to hold an assembly for that purpose. This was granted with some reluctance, and their assembly was appointed to meet at the Savoy on the 12th of October, 1658. They opened their meeting with a day of fasting and prayer, and after some deliberation resolved to keep as near as possible to the method and order of the Westminster Assembly's Confession of Faith and framing a similar document for themselves. A committee was chosen to prepare the outline, consisting of Drs. Goodwin and Owen, Messrs. Nye, Bridge, Carlisle, and Greenhill. In the short period of about 11 or 12 days, they finished their work, which was soon afterwards published under the title of A Declaration of the Faith and Order Owned and Practiced in the Congregational Churches in England, agreed upon and consented unto by their elders and messengers in their meeting at the Savoy. The speed with which they completed their task contrasts very strongly with the manner in which they contrived to retard the progress of the Westminster Assembly, but may be readily explained. They followed the Assembly's confession very closely to which indeed their leading men had already assented. They omitted all the chapters which relate to discipline, thus avoiding the discussion of disputed topics, and they had now no object to serve by delay, but many a motive to induce them to make haste. At the end of their work, there is a chapter of discipline consisting of five sections and giving a brief statement and assertion of the main points in which their system differed from that of the Presbyterians, respecting the power of single congregations, the method of ordination, the administration of the sacraments, the use of synods and assemblies to consult and advise, but without authority, and occasional communion with other churches. Footnote. Neil, Volume 2, pages 690 to 692. End of footnote. This Savoy Confession, as it is commonly called, never acquired any importance in the community and did not supersede the Assembly's Confession of Faith, even in the estimation of a large proportion of the independents themselves. And as Cromwell, the great supporter of the independent party, died very soon after its production, on the 3rd of September, 1658, it never received his public sanction. Upon the death of Cromwell, he was succeeded by his son Richard, a man of an amiable character, but utterly unfit to conduct the government of the country in such a time of storm and peril. A plot was formed against him by a part of the army, headed by Fleetwood and Desborough, to whom the leading independent divines, especially Mr. Nye and his party, lent their ready assistance. 
Richard was persuaded to dissolve the Parliament. Fleetwood and Desborough and their party immediately summoned the rump of the Long Parliament to reassemble, and Richard, seeing it impossible to maintain his power without another civil war, and being destitute of military talents, resolved to abdicate his authority and retire to private life. A new series of dark intrigues followed, in which General Monk acted a prominent part, the issue of which was the restoration of Charles II on the 29th of May, 1660. In consequence of the mutual jealousies of the various parties, the king was restored without conditions of any kind, and thus the liberties, both civil and religious, of the kingdom, in defense of which so much blood had been shed and so many miseries endured, were laid at his feet. The prelatic hierarchy were immediately restored to the possession of all their rank, wealth, and power, and speedily proved that the persecuting spirit of prelacy had sustained no abatement. For a short time, the king affected to treat the Presbyterian ministers with respect and kindness, and they were encouraged to hope that although prelacy was restored to its former supremacy, yet some modification of it might be made to which it might be possible to conform. After some consultation among themselves, they presented to His Majesty a petition expressing their desires for such alterations as might lead to an accommodation and agreement in an amended and modified episcopacy. This petition was communicated to the prelates, who returned such an answer as greatly to obscure all prospect of any accommodation. But as matters were not yet ripe for what was intended, the king issued a declaration concerning ecclesiastical affairs, containing so many plausible statements that the hopes of the Presbyterians were somewhat revived. At length it was arranged that a conference should be held at the Savoy between twelve bishops and nine assistants on the part of the Episcopalian Church and an equal number of ministers on the part of the Presbyterians. The first meeting of this conference took place on the 15th of April, 1661, and it was continued with intermissions till the 25th of July when it expired without producing the slightest approximation towards an agreement, the bishops refusing to make any alterations in the Book of Common Prayer to which their discussions were limited, or to make any concession to the conscientious scruples or more grave and solid arguments of the Presbyterian ministers. Footnote. For a full account of this conference, see History of Nonconformity, Life of Baxter, and so on. End of footnote. A convocation was held soon after the termination of the conference, in which a few alterations were made in the prayer book, not all for the better, and the proceedings of the convocation were ratified by both Houses of Parliament. It now remained to enforce the prelatic system by the strong hand of legislative power. This was done by the Act of Uniformity, which, after passing both houses by small majorities, 
received the royal assent on the 19th of May, 1662, and was to take effect from the 24th of August following. The terms of conformity specified by this act were 1. Reordination if they had not been episcopally ordained. 2. A declaration of unfeigned assent and consent to all and everything prescribed and contained in the Book of Common Prayer and administration of sacraments and other rites and ceremonies of the Church of England, together with the Psalter and the form and manner of making, ordaining, and consecrating a bishop, priest, and deacons. 3. To take the oath of canonical obedience. 4. To abjure the solemn league and covenant. 5. To abjure the lawfulness of taking arms against the king or any commission by him on any pretense whatsoever. Such were the terms of the infamous and tyrannical act of uniformity, which was to come into force on what is termed the Feast of St. Bartholomew. And the penalty for any who should refuse was deprivation of all his spiritual promotions. The result was that when the fatal St. Bartholomew's Day arrived, about 2,000 Presbyterians relinquished all their ecclesiastical preferments, abandoned all their worldly means of subsistence, left their homes, and more painful than all, their churches and their weeping and heart-stricken flocks, and became literally strangers and pilgrims in their native country. Like their divine master, not having where to lay their heads. In their day of power, when ejecting Episcopalian ministers, convicted of scandalous offenses or of ignorance, they had allowed these men a fifth part of their former livings, but no similar mercy or charity was shown to them. They were at once driven and abandoned to utter poverty and homelessness and to grievous wrong was added not less grievous insult and the cruel and contumelious treatment which they received from their proud and pitiless oppressors. Yet in one respect the day of St. Bartholomew was a glorious day. It testified to a wondering world the strength and the integrity of Presbyterian principles in their triumph over every earthly influence, or rather, let us say, it proved that the essential spirit of the Presbyterian Church is the spirit of Christianity itself, and therefore it received divine strength in the day of sore trial, that it might finish its testimony in behalf of the sole sovereignty of Christ over his own spiritual kingdom, to the laws and institutions of which man has no right to add, and which he cannot without sin diminish. Yes, for the Presbyterian Church, and even for the Westminster Assembly, by which that church had been introduced into England, it was a glorious day. But what was it for prelacy? A day of everlasting infamy, stamping upon its character indelibly the charge provided by so many repeated facts of being essentially a persecuting system. 
but it was equally unnecessary and ungracious to dwell on the detailed results of this tyrannical and persecuting act, and therefore with a few incidental remarks of some general importance we shall pass from the painful subject. It must have been observed that the religious body once known by the name of Puritans became Presbyterians both in principles and practice, partly before and thoroughly during the time of the Westminster Assembly. Against them, accordingly, as Presbyterians, was the force of persecution directed, although the demands and the penalties of the Act of Uniformity were equally applicable to the independents and all other sects of dissenters, and of the whole 2,000 who were ejected by that Act, above nine-tenths were Presbyterians. The independents did not, at that time, number more than a hundred churches in their communion. The Baptists were still fewer, and of the other sects the greater part had only those lay preachers who had sprung up during the enthusiastic times of the Civil War. Of the divines who had constituted the Westminster Assembly, not more than six, or in strict propriety, only four conformed. About thirty of them were dead before the act came into operation, some of them very close upon the time, and one or two almost immediately after preaching what would have proved by persecution, as they did by death, their farewell sermons. The names of the six who are stated to have conformed were Doctors Conant, Wallace, Reynolds, and Lightfoot and Messrs. Hayrick and Hodges. But of these, Dr. Conant, at first refused to conform, was ejected and continued so for a period of eight years, when the persuasion of relatives prevailed on him to comply, and he was appointed to a ministerial charge in Northampton, and subsequently obtained other preferments. And Dr. Wallace, who had been one of the scribes to the Westminster Assembly, was made civilian professor of geometry at Oxford in the year 1649, an office which in a great measure excluded him from ecclesiastical affairs and rendered the act of conformity to him little different from a university qualification. It thus appears that almost the entire surviving members of the Westminster Assembly gave to the principles which they had then declared and advocated the strong and clear testimony of suffering in their defense. Having now stated all the leading events connected with and resulting from the Westminster Assembly, we might here conclude, but in order to obtain as clear and comprehensive a conception of the whole subject as possible, it seems expedient to retrace for the purpose of combining in one view its leading principles, characteristics, endeavors, and intentions, offering some remarks explanatory of their nature, showing how far they were successful, or by what and to what extent obstructed, what actual impress they gave to the form of society, or what vital elements they infused into its heart and how far the great objects which they sought to attain may yet be susceptible 
of resuscitation and accomplishment. It has been already shown by a series of historical deductions that the principle of the sovereign supremacy in ecclesiastical matters conjoined with the encroaching and domineering spirit of prophecy has so nearly subverted all liberty, civil and religious, that it became the imperative duty of every Christian and every patriot to unite in resisting the cruel and degrading thraldom with which the kingdom was threatened. To that subject, it is not necessary again to direct our attention, nor need we do more than simply refer to the important fact that the main purpose for which the Westminster Assembly was called together and the solemn leading covenant was framed was to produce, so far as might be practicable, unity of religious belief and uniformity in church government throughout England, Scotland, and Ireland. Even for the sake of procuring and maintaining peace among the nations composing the one British Empire, such a uniformity was regarded as almost indispensable. For as the Scottish commissioners reasoned, there is nothing so powerful to divide the hearts of people as division in religion, nothing so strong to unite them as unity in religion. The same idea was entertained by both James VI and his son Charles I, and both of them sought to realize it by imposing the English system on the church and people of Scotland, the one by fraud and the other by force. As might have been expected, neither of them was successful, but the attempt to realize the idea by such methods both showed its importance and placed it in a clearer light, as related to the two kingdoms of England and Scotland. The people of Scotland loved their church devotedly, not only on account of its purity of doctrine and scriptural simplicity of form, but also because by its means alone had they acquired a partial release from the feudal thraldom in which they had previously been held by their haughty and oppressive nobles and they were compelled to see that their beloved church would never be safe from the aggressions of prelacy as long as the prelatic form of church government prevailed in England. On the other hand, the oppressive, persecuting, and despotic conduct of prelacy in its treatment of the Puritans and in the aid which it so willingly lent to the sovereign in his invasions of civil liberty had at length aroused the strong and free spirit of England, which determined to shake off the prelatic yoke and to make such alterations as should render its future re-imposition impossible. Such a concurrence of sentiment and feeling between the two nations held out the prospect that at least an approach to uniformity of religion might now be obtained such as would form the only sure basis of a thorough and permanent national peace, and that, too, not by one of the two dictating to the other, but in the only way by which real uniformity can ever be effected, by mutual consultation and consent. Such were the enlarged, free, and generous views which led to the calling of the Westminster Assembly and the framing of the Solemn Leading Covenant. Such, in an especial manner, was the views entertained by the Scottish Covenanters, 
both statesmen and divines, as is proved by that remarkably able paper presented by them to the English Parliament in the year 1641. It is, however, a painful truth that these elevated ideas were not received and held with equal fullness, sincerity, and perseverance by a large proportion of the English statesmen, and this defectiveness on their part allowed the remaining existence and the subsequent growth and development of those disturbing influences, which at length prevented the grand object from being fully realized. In England the struggle was chiefly in defense of civil rights and privileges, involving also, though somewhat less directly, the still more important element of religious liberty. Hence the ordinary secular opinions and feelings that mold the course of human action were allowed to have almost full scope and produce their common narrowing and self-seeking influence. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.